The book of Ephesians this evening. Ephesians in chapter 1 is where we're going to begin. Uh, we're going to begin here. Uh, just at the, looking at these two verses just for a brief moment. And then from there, we're going to get into the intro uh, and the, um, the background of where and why Paul is writing unto, unto the church there of Ephesus. We'll go back to see how it was planted. Uh, Paul's tenure in Ephesus this evening, as we'll read and study that throughout Acts chapter 19. And um, once we get finished with that, guys, we'll get into the verse-by-verse Bible study of uh, the book, the letter, the epistle of, the Ephes- uh, of Ephesians. And uh, so Ephesians in chapter 1 tonight, uh, looking in verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So looking at those two verses, guys, all, uh, you know, it, it's the, the salutation that Paul has opening up this letter here. As he's writing back to the church, he's writing back to the church that he planted. Now, you may ask, why teach, why teach one of the letters? Why go verse by verse? Well, throughout this year, this is what we're going to do in our midweek services, is we're going to do a, a, a book, a Bible, uh, I'm sorry, a book of the Bible, a verse by verse teaching. And we're primarily going to be in the New Testament this year. That's going to be the plan. That's the goal. And uh, <laughs> the book of Ephesians is a very, a very important book. Now, they are all important. Don't get me wrong. But... With this letter unto the Ephesus church, guys, it's an excellent example of how two false doctrines uh, have neg- negatively affected the body of Christ really and truly over the last 200 plus years, uh, uh, even though we know it's, it's been much, much, much longer than that. But these two particular doctrines have come uh, to, really into the forefront and to prevalent teaching over the last 200 years. And the two doctrines are twisted into chapters 1 and chapters 3. And uh, those two doctrines are known as hyper-Calvinism and then hyper-dispensationalism. Now, when it comes to hyper-dispensationalism, now, as you know, we are dispensationalists. The Bible is a dispensational book, okay? And you may be sitting here tonight and saying, well, I've never heard the word dispensation. Well, that's wrong because we taught on dispensations here uh, just a few months ago. Uh, you may be sitting here saying, well, I just don't believe that. I believe uh, all of the Bible is for all of us all the time. If you believe that, you're inherently, inherently uh, foolish. I'll say that. Because uh, I can promise you this, the clothing you're wearing right now proves uh, that you don't believe that. Because you have a mixture of different types of cloth uh, on your body. And that would be something in the Old Testament would be disallowed. Amen? And the list could go on and on and on. I am a dispensationalist. God is a dispensationalist. The Bible is a dispensationalist. And any Bible believer that God uh, has enough sense that God gave a billy goat, amen, are dispensationalists. I am not a hyper-dispensationalist. A hyper-dispensationalist is someone who would believe that, say, the Paulinian epistles are all that we need for us today in the New Testament church. In other words, ruling out anything else outside of Paul's 14 epistles. And then when you really, really want to get uh, technical on that, seeing that Hebrews is a transitional book, you'd have to rule out half of it as well and just throw, it at, you know, throw the baby out to the bathroom. That's what a hyper-dispensationalist is. We're not that. We are dispensationalists. We are no kind of Calvinists, okay? Calvinism is a devilish doctrine. And rest assured, guys, if you believe either one of these doctrines, guys, um, or at least uh, uh, who have taught uh, you this rubbish, guys, uh, you know, you, you have to alter uh, the, the authorized version, the King James Bible, 
5,000 times in order to believe any of these doctrines, okay? Um, you know, you nor the false teachers who hold to these doctrines uh, have found a hidden truth, and that's typically what they'll, they'll say, that we've found a hidden truth that was beyond the layers of the words here, and, but they've had to make changes in order to see that. You haven't received a special revelation. Um, what they have done is they have misinterpreted the Scripture, and just as Peter so eloquently said, especially concerning Paul's epistles, he said in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is, is salvation, even as our beloved Paul, brother Paul, uh, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things, uh, 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 some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. All right, that's not rest as in sleeping, that's with a W, and that's like wrestle, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction, okay? It's, so it's very clear, if you begin to alter and twist, uh, maybe some hard teaching or hard things that the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, the same Holy Spirit that saved your soul, uh, has in, had instructed him and commanded him to write, that you do so because you're unlearned and unstable. You wrestle with the Scriptures to your own destructions. So the city of Ephesus uh, is originally was a seaport. The Castor River eventually blocked its uh, channel to the ocean, causing it to become a, a much lesser important harbor city later on. But in the days of the Apostle Paul, in his life, uh, you know, Ephesus was quite the co uh, you know, cosmopolitan city. It was a, quite a, a large city. It boasted the largest theater in Asia Minor, uh, uh, reputed to have a capacity of seating over 50,000 people. Now, that's big, okay? Do you know how many people the Colosseum in Rome reportedly ha uh, was able to seat? 50,000 people. So that's how big this theater was uh, in Ephesus, okay? So in addition, you know, in, in addition to this type of city, uh, uh, the, you know, this type of structures for the lovers of pleasure, according to 2 Timothy 3, 4, Ephesus had a temple which was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, supported by 127 columns, nearly 60 feet in height. And it was made of marble, okay, uh, according to uh, Pliny's work in the National History uh, book. And this was, the, the, uh, this was the, uh, the structure, the temple, if you will, that was dedicated to Diana, to uh, the Greek goddess of Diana. So Paul's work there, and this is before writing the epistle, of course, is described as we find in Acts, Acts 18 through 20 that we'll look at here in a moment, but really we're going to settle in Acts 19. Eusebius states that, uh, that the apostle, Paul, apostle John stayed in Ephesus before his banishment to Patmos. And when John writes to the church of Ephesus, he tells of a church who was a hardworking and faithful to the Word of God, and they only failed in keeping their first love. And you find that in Revelation 2, verse 4. So Paul writes this epistle from a Roman jailhouse. Ephesians 3, 1 confirms this, as well as Romans, Ephesians 4, 1. But we're only going to look at Ephesians 3, 1, which says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. He writes this letter in the autumn of A.D. 62, okay, A.D. 62. And it's when he also writes Philemon, Colossians, and uh, the book of Philippians. Most of the historians agree uh, that it was written during his first imprisonment, as we read about in Acts 28. 
uh, in its infinity with Colossians' epistle is apparent in every single line. I'm going to throw some verses up here. Uh, you're welcome to write them down. I won't read them all. But you see this, how the comparison between the two letters are so close one to another. Ephesians 1, 7, Colossians 1, 14, and so on. And those will be on the screen here uh, for a little while. So the epistle, guys, is made up of six chapters, 155 verses, and 3,039 words. Uh, the validity and depth of this book, guys, covers the body of Christ as well as the local New Testament church. Uh, it's, and because it covers those significant aspects, here's what I want you to understand. In the Garden of Eden, the very first thing that the devil attacked, the very first thing that Satan went after was what? It was the home. It was the marriage. It was the husband and the wife. That's the first thing that he goes after. And, the, and the, the Lord Jesus Christ uses the very blueprint of husband and wife as the blueprint of the bride of Christ and the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom and the church, saved born again individuals, is the bride, if you will. The local New Testament church makes up, is made up of saved born again believers. So therefore, the local New Testament church is made up of those who are part of the bride of Christ. So why do you, so it should, it should not be a surprise to you tonight to find out that Satan wants to destroy the foundations that we find, just like in Genesis chapter 3, he wants to destroy that, the foundations of the local New Testament church. He wants to rob the importance and the credibility and the validity and the, and, and the, the, the foundational teaching of the local New Testament church. He does that from without and he does that from within. He does that with the changing cultures on the outside and the changing cultures on the inside. How does he do it on the outside in the, ever, in the evolution of uh, the changing of the culture? I'll tell you a very a, a prime example. We were on the way into church tonight. We were coming by there, and we saw a mom, I'm assuming it's a mom, and their child with a rugby ball and the kit on, and they're going to rugby practice or to a rugby match. You say, oh, preacher, are you against rugby? You against sports? No, I'm not. I'm not against them. I'm against them when they take you out of church. Any sport there is. Anything there is. All right? You say, well, preacher, you know, our kids got to have something to do. Yeah, they got to go be in, they ought to be in church on Sunday, and they ought to be in church on Wednesday night. Okay? So what the devil has done is the devil has twisted the culture of society to put things in front of those particular church times. It doesn't matter if your local church meets on a Tuesday, meets on a Wednesday, meets on a Thursday for their midweek service. You and your family should be in the house. So if you want your family in line with God, and don't tell me, well, preacher, I can be a Christian outside of church just as easy as I being in church. No, you can't. You cannot. That's like saying that I can be full of food without ever sitting at the dinner table and eating doesn't work, guys. It doesn't work. The body of Christ needs to be in the local New Testament church. So that's why we find the outside culture is in enmity, if you will, with the, the, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the, found, the founder of the local New Testament church, with the founder of the body of Christ, with the bridegroom. So what about the culture within the church? The, uh, the, old, uh, the old mantra, the fifth column that you may have heard of, the fifth column is, is an idea of in a battle of the art of war that if you can't destroy a nation, a country, a culture, a government from without, you can destroy it with, from within by setting up a spy, setting up a change of culture. 
I look at our culture today and I look at what our, you know, I saw a meme earlier, not a meme, actually I saw a testimony of what the children do in China in school in between their lessons. You know what they do in their school, in their classroom, right in the middle, in their seats, mind you. They have an X amount of time of exercise, okay? And inside this, inside the caption of this thing that was showing what these students are doing in China, in synchronization, they were doing these exercises. They're building their body. They're getting in good health, if you will, all right? Meanwhile, the American children today are being triggered by pronouns. They, they, the boys think they're girls, and girls think they're boys, and, and then the other ones, they don't know what they are, and they're flipping out all over the place. They're becoming blooming idiots because they're attached to a TikTok and attached to a phone the majority of time of their life. Amen. And we wonder why we're losing. That's the fifth column. The infiltration of something within a society. And it's no different within the church today. Satan has his men. Paul said, beware of grievous wolves. They're going to come from without, no, from within to bite and to devour. With the false teachings, the false Bibles, the false doctrines, teaching you a lie of, and calling it biblical truth. And we see it all over the place today. I would, be, I, would, I would be suspect to say that we could find four Bible-believing, doctrine-filled, dispensational churches within a 30-mile radius of where we are. I bet you couldn't find four. You say, well, I know some good churches that preach. They may preach a good gospel. But if they're out of line in the doctrine, guys, it won't hold water later on. If they're holding to signs and wonders and healings and, and speaking in gibberish. and I'm not even going to call them tongues. It's not tongues. It's not biblical tongues. Amen. Biblical tongues is a supernatural event that occurs from between, between two people. If I speak in, say, English and you're German and you hear it in German, but that language I'm speaking, it's something that happens from between here and here. It ain't me doing it. Amen. All this jibber-jibber-jabber, that, that, is, that is satanically motivated, you understand? And it's a fifth column within the house of God today that is destroying the foundation of the Word of God, the foundation of God's church. It's one of the reasons the book of, of Ephesians is so attacked, guys. And it's because of its weight of the body of Christ and the New Testament local church. It makes it a huge target for apostates, you know, all the way from the 2nd century, but especially in the 19th century. Uh, they've, criticized over, uh, they've criticized, on average, five times per verse, making it more than 700 suggested changes and alterations just in the six chapters of Ephesians. That's what your apostates, that's what your critical thinkers have done. That's what your charismatics, your Pentecostals, that's what your... Your cults have done that tell you not to eat meat and, and don't worship on, don't come to church on Sunday. And, and you know, then Joseph Smith, the, all of the other false doctrines, devilish, deceiving doctrines. Over 700 suggested changes and alterations out of 155 verses. My goodness, man. I can tell you this right now. If, if I found seven things that needed altering, I just got to close this book up and put it away. But uh, no honest or competent Bible believer or teacher would lean in the slightest amount toward this type of devilish teaching. So before we get into the verses, I've already mentioned tonight, before we get into the verses in Ephesus, or I'm sorry, I keep saying Ephesus, uh, in uh, the letter to the Ephesians, I, I want us to look 
in Acts 19. I want us to look at the background of the church, the background of Ephesus. And I'll mind my time tonight, guys. Uh, like I said, we have the whole quarter to go over the book of Ephesians. And uh, so we'll take uh, plenty of time to do so. And if we don't get, to get through Acts 19 this evening, then uh, we'll save it for next week. So let's go to Acts chapter 19 tonight. I'm going to look start to start out with in verses 1 through 7. And uh, when we look at Ephesus and we look at this great evangelistic experience that occurs here, marvelous event that occurs in Ephesus here, but, but I do want you to see something in the forefront, and we won't belabor a lot of time on these first seven verses, but I believe it's mindful for us to understand and to look at it just real quick. The Bible says here in verse 1, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. He said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as, as heard uh, whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after me, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, uh, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. So Paul's now saved 18 years. Uh, he's on his mission journey here that we find. He begins uh, to experience the things in his ministry like he never has before. Now, Acts chapter 19 is the foundation for the book uh, of, of the Ephesians. It's the foundation of the book on the seasons of the ministry. Uh, it's a foundation on the language that is used to the letter written to the Ephesians. And it correlates with the chapter that, uh, that we're going to look at here later on. Paul directs words and titles in a different way, in a different form, than he does in any other letter when he writes to the, the Ephesians. He writes of principalities. He writes of powers of rulers. Uh, he writes of uh, rulers of darkness and things like that. It's a different way he writes at the book of Ephesians than he does any other letter. And we find that reason in Acts chapter 19. Now, Acts 19 gives us the, the preparation of spiritual warfare. It gives us a lesson on the Holy Ghost. Now, remember... Ephesians is also the, the letter that Paul writes about spiritual warfare. He writes about the whole armor of God. And right out of the chute here, right Johnny on the spot when he lands in Ephesus and he finds some disciples there, there are 12 men that show up that have never even heard of a Holy Ghost. Amen. So Ephesus, when compared to Rome, or the Rome of today, it contains one of the seven wonders of the world, being the Temple of Diana which is the fertility goddess among the pagans. So it should not surprise us that God's preparing him for a spiritual battle. The city itself was believed to be built and founded by women, and therefore it was given over to the goddess Diana. The temple uh, base bears uh, such descriptive words as magnificent and wonderful. The temple craftsmen set out instructional booklets to go with your idol of Diana so that you could properly worship her at home. Hey, does that sound familiar? That sound familiar? You can get you a pamphlet and your little idol of Mary, and you can go worship her. All you, not here you can, but you know all you want. All right, here's how you do it, amen. Where do you think that came from? So uh, it was common to find little boxes all over the city of Ephesus, guys. Uh, you know, Satan used a, a sister poisoned a, a, a sister a system here to poison the world with idol worship, and it draws amazing correlation, if you will, to the uh, really to the. The, the Catholic destitution that was performed in the Philippines. If you ever do a historical study on uh, the islands of the, Phil the Philippines, 
uh, you find out what, when Spain went through there, they went there and they devastated that place, robbing them of minerals and gold. And they did it all in the name of the so-called church. It was the Roman Catholicism that came in there and placed these people in bondage. Throughout that entire city, they show up with these little babies called Centeninus, Holy Child. All right? And they would give you this little baby doll, and you could worship this baby doll, and you could place it up. In, and all throughout the, uh, the, the Philippine Islands, you find those little things. But they're robbing of the minerals and robbing of the gold and the silver and everything that they had. Matter of fact, they had the blood compact, 495 years uh, that Spain had a control, a satanic control over those isles for those poor people. Praise God for an evangelistic outbreak throughout those islands over the last hundred years. I mean, God opened up the door, missionaries went over there and won these people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and those nationals surrendered to preach. You know, the Philippines today is the number one missionary sending nation in the entire world. It sure ain't us, and it's not America. It's the Philippines. The, Philippines. the, the, uh, the, the Filipino people are sending people into, into Africa and Ethiopia, all over the world today to reach people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet they came out of a wicked battle, just like you find Rome coming into these Greek cities and these Asia Minor cities and destroying it with this pagan idolatry worship with Diana. Uh, it was the seed of immorality, Ephesus was. It was the seed of idolatry, of witchcraft. And, and this is the reason, this is the reason why words like desire and darkness and spiritual wickedness that Paul uses when he writes back to them. This is the whole purpose that we find here, guys, when we're looking at it and we see that the very first seven verses opens up in a simplistic manner, but there is a clear and abundant statement, we haven't even heard of a Holy Ghost. You follow? Paul writes, if you will, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 8 through 9, he says, but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me. Then he says, and there are many adversaries. Despite the wickedness of the city, the people there were, the people uh, uh, that, that uh, had affected, there was a great and effectual door that was opened unto, unto the Apostle Paul. Thousands of souls were getting saved, as we begin to see here in Acts 19 here in just a little bit. And it seems as if all the churches must go through a time of combat with spiritual wickedness from within and from without. You've, we've had it. We've seen it. We've dealt with it, both within and without. Uh, and, and it just seems like that has to happen in every single local church, some way here, some way, shape, form, or fashion. But in Ephesus, the Lord enables Paul to produce a, a great and mighty work. Six of the seven cities uh, uh, and churches, if you will, recorded in the book of Revelation, uh, it was men, or Paul himself, that whom he ordained is sent out to plant these churches. We know Paul planted the one at Ephesus, and all of those other churches were sent out. Men were sent out to plant these mighty works. Great men have always had critics, and there was about, uh, for about 2,000 years, Paul has had his critics. Today, people run around making comments like, uh, quoting, Paul really meant this and really meant that, and well, he didn't really mean to say that, and this is where he really was. Guys, I'm telling you right now, an earmark to, to blot somebody out and let, don't even take directions from them is when they say, well, let me tell you what this really means, or a better word would be this, and that's not what Paul really said. This is what he, okay, you know, when you hear that, just ignore anything else that is said. Amen? And it's that simple uh, with me, guys. My friend, the Bible says what it means. It means what it says. So there's three divisions that we see in the seven verses here in Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. We see first a doctrinal dilemma. We see a dialogue with disciples. 
and we see disciples' deliverance. And we're going to address these three divisions here, uh, just all of those three at one time. Again, we don't want to belabor a whole lot of point on this. We want to get into the, the city and see what happens. So the first thing that Paul runs into with these 12 men uh, is that they only knew the baptism of John. So I want in your mind, I want you to picture who these men are. They are disciples of John, not Jesus Christ. They had never heard of the Holy Spirit of God, even though Jesus Christ said, Behold, I send the Comforter uh, down unto you. When he's, uh, even though Jesus said, Tarry ye here in Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high, which is the Holy Spirit of God. So you've got to think about it. These men dress like John. They lived like John. They ate like John. They were disciples of John the Baptist. And so, again, without expending much energy on this portion of Scripture, guys, we're going to look at two key verses, verses 2 and 3, uh, you know, that they had not heard the Holy Ghost and were simply baptized according to John's baptism. So in verse 4, to answer and address the, that statement, they've never heard of the Holy Ghost, Verse 4, Paul says, then, Paul, uh, Paul, then said Paul, verily, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So Paul expresses that John's baptism was only the baptism of repentance, that you were turning away from self and sin, seduction of this world. He, John himself, said, that you must believe on someone who's going to come after him, which is Christ Jesus. That's what John said. John said also, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John never claimed to be the Savior. Never at all in his entire life. Matter of fact, John said, I must decrease, he must increase. John's very clear about that. So this is not on John's uh, head. This is not his fault. Look in verse 5. It says, And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I think we were talking about this on Sunday or Sunday last. There are groups of people out there that are known as Jesus-only baptizers, all right? This is the verse they use. They take a transitional book right in the slap middle or toward the end of the transitional period, and even though the Jesus himself said to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, they take this right here. That would be somebody that you would call a hyper-dispensationalist, all right? Jesus-only. Not going to baptize in the name of the Father, not going to baptize in the name of the Holy Ghost of God. So, when they heard this, now, allowing the Scripture to answer the Scripture, knowing the Bible has, has a built-in dictionary and a built-in commentary in and of itself, we take at face value what we're reading here in verses 4 and 5 concerning these 12 disciples of John, and we examine their salvation in light of Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. All right, so I've heard all kinds of different opinions. Uh, friends of mine have different opinions on these verses. I, a real close friend of mine believes that when they turned up, that they were saved, uh, that they were born-again individuals, okay? But they have yet to receive the Holy Spirit of God. They didn't even know anything about the Holy Spirit of God, uh, which is contradictory of salvation. Now, again, I understand the transitional period. I know that they're Jews. That's the only reason we find the speaking in tongues and the laying on of hands. That's the only reason we find that period because they were lost individuals. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22? That tongues are for what? For the lost. They're not for the saved. They're not for the believer. Any born-again believer today that, again, fakes it and bakes it and shakes it, calling it tongues, number one, they're lying. Number two, they're either under a satanic influence, okay? But number three, they're dis, dis, discounting exactly what it's for. It ain't for you, saved person. 
And that person across the, the way, they're saying, let me stand up and, and uh, you know, uh, interpret, thus saith the Lord. That's all a lie, guys. Now, they may be fully convinced that it's true, okay? They also may be fully under the influence of the devil himself. And I, I believe that to probably be true as well. You say, preacher, are you against Yeah, I'm against them. They're a liar. They're, 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 uh, they're replacement theologists, guys. They make people, they, they convince people that unless you have this fuzzy feeling and this out-of-body experience and you gibber something, you ain't saved. They believe in being saved, uh, saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost and these multiple blessings, man. The Bible tells me God's not a respecter of persons. You mean to tell me he's going to give you a bigger blessing than somebody else over here? No, he, you're going to get more of the Holy Spirit. you got all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get on the day and the moment you were saved and born again. How much you yield over to that Holy Spirit is how much you're filled by him. That's the answer of the question. It says, be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's how that is addressed. He's there the whole time. Amen. Just like he was in the Holy of Holies, you are the temple now and where in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Amen. So addressing this topic here of these 12 disciples of John, were they saved? Were they unsaved? They were saved when they believed what they heard, and that's in Acts chapter 19. They were not saved prior to that. They were baptized just like many of the Pharisees were baptized into the baptism of repentance. And there's a reason, even though we don't find a conflict here, we don't find a battle, we really and truly we find a group of 12 good men who are doing good things, who are following what John taught and what John wrote and how John lived. These were good men. These were not devilish men. These were not even deceived men. They just hadn't heard. In my personal opinion, I believe they were out in the wilderness living in a loincloth and eating, I was going to say crickets, but eating locusts and honey, amen. Uh, I believe they have been doing that ever since Jesus, before Jesus Christ had been killed. More than likely, they got out of Jerusalem when John the Baptist was beheaded, amen, and had been gone ever since. And by God's grace, they meet up with a man of God, a man named Paul. I, I don't believe these were bad guys. They just didn't know. And guys, there's some people that you're going to meet in the world today that are caught up in wrong doctrines because of deceitful men. And they're good people. They're nice people. They love the Lord Jesus Christ more than likely as much as you do, maybe even more. They just don't know. You say, well, preacher, they got the same Bible as I do. Yeah, they do, but they also got a guy in the pulpit who's steering them and twisting them in the wrong way. And if you got friends like that, guys, you know what? You take the opportunity. Sit down with them and show them the better way. Amen? Show them. A better way. I'll give you a good example of that, as a matter of fact. And uh, I think we have time. Turn back uh, two chapters, if you will. And uh, maybe we'll go there. I may, I don't know, I may not even, may not even run that route, but... Uh, If you look over here and, uh, and, and we see um, 
one chapter, I'm sorry, Acts 18. And look down to verse 24. This is when Paul had made a brief, little teeny stop in Ephesus. And he left his two his friends there, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, you know, husband and wife. Um, you know, Aquila was a tent maker with him, and uh, he had had his uh, head shorn, we know. And verse 19 says he came to Ephesus and left them there. He himself uh, entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, and they wanted him to stay at this time. We're going to see later on they wanted him to get out of Dodge. But if you will, look down here in verse 24. And the Bible says here, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born of Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. And this man was instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only, watch this, the baptism of John. Whoa. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him, they took him, they took unto him, sorry, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who when he was come helped them, uh, helped them much uh, which had believed through grace, and, and he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Now this guy would knew the Scriptures. And when it says he knew the Scriptures, what did he know? The Old Testament. There wasn't anything written for the New Testament as of yet. Alright? Maybe, there may have been three of the, no, uh, one, one of the Gospels written by then, but they probably would, they wouldn't have had a copy of it. So Apollos is an eloquent man. He's a great speaker. The only thing he knew about was the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila, rather than rebuking him and calling him names and all this and that, they said, man, this, this is a good dude. This is a good guy. He is helping people. Let's help him. And they show him the way of God more perfectly, the Bible says. And then we find the end of the story that he's showing by the scriptures, same scriptures that he knew before, that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. It's no different than I look at when we go right into the seven, first seven verses of Acts 19. These men were not bad men, I don't, see. I don't think they were sowing seeds of false doctrine. The only thing they knew was the baptism of John. They didn't even know about the Holy Ghost. What did Paul do? He educated them. He trusted the Lord to plant a seed. He planted a seed, trusted the Lord to bring fruition of that seed. And he did. And they believed and they were baptized and they went on their way. You see, my friend, that's the thing that we need to get a hold of. The year now, as Paul goes into Ephesus, 80, 55, 56, Paul's going to write the verses uh, that we're going to read about in the book of Ephesians in AD 58, three years later that uh, we know uh, in the spring of uh, 58. And uh, no, I'm sorry, not, he writes it in 62. But the verses we're reading about in Acts 19, by the time we get to the end of it, is going to be AD 58, okay? And much of an argument has been made whether or not these 12 men, again, were saved prior. But, you know, I think it's, it's, it's easy to see when they heard of Jesus Christ, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Word truth. They were saved and born again. So I think it's a great picture to see in the preparation of what happens in Ephesus, which gives us an open door uh, to the letter uh, to the Ephesians to make us more aware of that and to understand it a little more clearly that it starts out 
with a little conflict. Not necessarily a battle, uh, not even a bump in the road, if you will. But it begins when he comes into the Ephesus with 12 guys who did not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who had not been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, who had not been saved, but they were doing what they knew. And I want us to keep that in. I'm going to stop here, guys. I'm going to stop here. Uh, just look into what I have in front. I got uh, a point that, that I, I won't be able to finish in time this evening. And so we're going to pick up next week in Acts chapter uh, 19 again. And we're going to pick up in verses uh, 6 and 7 and, and onward. And we'll finish uh, his tenure there uh, in Ephesus next week. And then we'll get into the first two verses of the book of Ephesians the following week. As this week and next week will be the intro and the background to the letter itself. But again, I come back to the point. Paul's right off the ship, back right into the city. And the first thing that he bumps into, he finds some disciples. And the first thing he bumps into is 12 men who he's going to have to have the hard conversation with. You know, we don't even know about Holy Ghost. What is that? And there's some times in our life, guys, that you may have some friends. And, and guys, I, I, I realize, guys. I, I'm harsh when it comes to false doctrine. I, I am hard, and I know that. And I know that I come across almost like a punch in the teeth and everything. And, uh, and, and, and I'll be honest with you, inside of me, that's what, that, that's what it is. Because when you try to alter and, and mess with the Word of God, and thus you mess with people's eternity, yeah, man, hey, I'm ready to fight. But that doesn't mean everybody that we meet that's confused on their doctrine that's confused about, like we talked about on Sunday, about the mass and this and that, the massacre, the killing of Bible-believing Christians because they would not go attend a, a Roman pagan institution in the 11th century. You know what I'm saying? You know, there's some people that do things, they just do it out of ignorance. These blokes here, these 12, they just, they just didn't know. So I guess what I'm saying tonight, just to close this thought out, is Paul could have lit them up. Paul could have rebuked them. Paul already slapped blindness on one guy in the first mission journey. Paul could have done that, but he didn't do that. He saw their humility. He saw their, I want to use, I, I use the word, their innocence. He saw the fact that they just simply were doing what they knew. And he showed them a, more, a better way. Just like Priscilla and Aquila made known the way of God more perfectly unto Apollo. And Apollo ended up being a tremendous asset to the Apostle Paul and the churches he planted. In Corinth, in Ephesus, in all different areas. When he went into Achaia and these different lands, Apollos was a mighty preacher of the Word of God. He was eloquent in tongue. Paul preached it with hard, hard speech. He, man, he, I mean, he could draw you in, but all he needed was to be fine-tuned with the, 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 way of the, word, the way of God more perfectly as we read. All right? So I think that's something that a good place to end tonight with the Bible study. And something for us to consider as we go through our daily battles, many battles, with those who may disagree with us simply because they misunderstand. Again, is, it, is there a difference between somebody standing in a pulpit and somebody sitting in a pew? Yeah. If you're going to take this sacred desk right here, you better have your ducks in a row. You better have your Bible in a row. A man that, take, that stands in that pulpit and he's confused on his doctrine, he's not worthy and he shouldn't be there. Amen? That's one of the reasons in 1 Timothy 3 it says not a novice. Okay? Not a novice. 
have some experience, have some, some teaching under your belt, and be sure about some things. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you, Lord, for the, the time tonight. I uh, pray, dear Lord, that things were at least clear enough, and I ask you, Lord, to please uh, bless the rest of the service this evening, Father, as we go into our announcements and, and then to our prayer meeting later on. We pray that you would be exalted. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen and amen.